I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. Concerns about masculinity and the American male have increasingly become an interesting and fraught part of societal and political discourse. In this week's episode, you're going to hear two distinct voices coming from two different vantage points, but coming to similar conclusions. One is well-known in this space. Richard Reeves is president of the American Institute for Boys and Men and author of the book, of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. The other is Washington Post opinion writer Christine Emba. She's the author of Rethinking Sex, a Provocation, and became a prominent voice in the masculinity dialogue with her widely read Washington Post opinion essay, Men Are Lost, Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness. In this incredible conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on July 12th, Reeves and Emba talk about the issues facing the modern American male, how to address them, and why the phrase toxic masculinity is a problem. So if there's no non-toxic masculinity, then that means there's only toxic masculinity. And that's just a really bad place to end up in. If we want to talk about solutions for men, we also have to make them feel invited into the conversation, not just stigmatized for existing, frankly. You're both coming at this this really interesting conversation from different vantage points. Christy, let me start with you. In your opinions essay, you took a closer look at the changing narrative around masculinity as revealed through your research. What does the modern man look like and what does society expect of him? So that's the real question. The modern man looks confused. <laughs> um, in my research, I talked to young men around the country, really, um, and sort of asked them what they thought it meant to be a man in this day and age and whether being a man had become harder over time. And so many of them said that, yes, it had become harder because they no longer knew exactly what their place was in the world um, in a really personal sense. You know, they had been brought up with at least some masculine ideals of being the provider, perhaps being a, a man in the house, taking the lead in some ways. And yet they saw their female friends and classmates surging ahead. You know, um, when it comes to college education, for example, there are only 74 men getting college degrees for every 100 women. Um, when they used to rely on sort of strength and physical prowess and be able to depend on that in the workforce, they're realizing that soft skills are sort of what is um, looked for in the new economy. There's no longer really the possibility of sort of getting a male factory job and providing for a whole family for the rest of your life. And then they were missing role models, really missing role models. And this was the thing that um, I found most alarming. Many of them said that they didn't necessarily have father figures in their lives or men that they really looked up to, or that the adults in their lives felt nervous about prescribing any particular model of masculinity and just sort of said, well, go be a good person, which wasn't enough uh, instruction for them. So they were turning to these influencers like Jordan Peterson or Andrew Tate, who were providing, if not a good path, at least a very clear one. Mm-hmm. Um, and to your point about lacking role models, you I think one of the first people you talked to was uh, like a postdoctoral 
um, student or professor in a tweed jacket who had younger younger folks coming to him looking for advice, and he was like, why? He was confused, like, why me? But Richard, you, you have three boys of your own. You dedicate your book to them. Uh, one of the opening lines in your book is that you are worried about the boys. Two questions, why? And have the conversations you've had with your own sons fed that worry? Yes, and Christine's already set out some of the statistics that I think are also covered very well in her essay. I want to say I think her essay is an incredibly important moment in in this mm -hmm. debate. It could be seen as something of a landmark, frankly, uh, given kind of who and where it's it's coming from. And what was happening to me was that in my day job as a public policy wonk, I was seeing these stats, including in education, but also the decline in male earnings, the surge in youth male suicide, the much higher death rates of men from COVID, etc. Etc. And what and what I felt was, and then I'm talking to my sons about their own experience in education, in the dating market, and so on, and realizing there was a real disconnect between their experience of what it was like to try and figure out how to be male today, and and the, and the narratives around them. And as as Christine said, in both directions. On the one hand, there's a narrative which is, well, don't worry about being masculine, or gender doesn't matter anymore, or just get rid of the toxic bit. If you wouldn't mind, could you just like like an, like an appendectomy almost, just like take that bit out, and you'll be you'll be good. But on the other hand, and they were all in one way or another intrigued by this other group of men who Christine calls the manfluencers, who are just saying, yeah, here's how to be a man, and it's how we've always been men. And so they felt trapped between a world where one side, and this would be more typically a progressive side, was almost turning its back on or ignoring the problems of boys and men or dismissing them, and on the other on the other hand. A bunch of guys who came along with a prescription that effectively amounts to turning back the clock and not least turning back the clock on women. And most young men aren't satisfied with either of those answers. And so mm -hmm. the, the starting point is, is there a question here based in data that is worth answering? And, and the clear answer to that is yes. And then the question becomes who's answering it and what are the answers? There's, I have so many questions that I want to ask as my next question, I don't know which one, <laughs> which one to start with. So what I, what I want to do is to get each of you to respond to what the other has written. So Christine, let me get you to react to something that is in Richard's book. He writes, what is needed is a positive vision of masculinity that is compatible with gender equality. We must help men adapt to the dramatic changes of recent decades without asking them to stop being men. We need a pro-social masculinity for a post-feminist world, and we need it soon. I think that's exactly right. I, I think he's totally on point. And in fact, that's why I ended up talking directly to Richard for my own piece. Right. I, I think this is the conflict that we see um, in the sort of models. And I'll, I'm using quotes because they're not really very good models that are being offered by the men who are offering something today. Um, when you see someone like Andrew Tate, say, who was just interviewed by Tucker Carlson and then Elon Musk, who is quite publicly struggling with his masculinity right now, retweeted it just this morning. You think maybe they're, they're watching this live. Um, you see a model for masculinity, but it is totally amoral. It is, in fact, antisocial. Andrew Tate talks about, you know, slapping women around, um, only getting money for himself and his friends. He has a famous line where he says that if he saw a man, you know, falling to the ground because he's had a heart attack, 
he wouldn't give him CPR because he only gives CPR to hot females. Um, it's like a totally self-centered, selfish version of masculinity that, yeah, it's, it's the opposite of pro-social. And this is what young men are getting today. But unfortunately, that is what's on offer. And what I write about in my piece is the problem that instead of offering an alternative, you know, here's another version of masculinity, a, a better model that you could use that also happens to be for society. Left seem unwilling to even acknowledge that masculinity is a thing. Um, and so they're not offering anything at all. There's just mm -hmm. kind of an empty space. And of course, who surges into the void? Right, right. And and the way you described Andrew Tate, you know, the, the instant phrase that popped into my head is toxic masculinity. And I want to get into why that is problematic, um, that phrase. But Richard, let me get you to, to react to something that's in, in Christine's essay, um, where she, a college student she interviewed for the essay told her this, I feel like there's a lot of room to be proudly feminine but there's not, in my opinion, the same room uh, to be proudly masculine. Do you agree with that statement? I do. And, and it oh, looks like Richard is, is frozen. Hopefully, we, Richard? <laughs> All right. And oh, that's, that's a problem for if, you're, if you Richard. happen to be male. R Richard. We missed your entire answer because you were frozen. So repeat what you were saying. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I think that for a lot of a lot of young men, they feel as if the term masculinity is framed in an entirely negative way. And that's bad if you happen to be a male. Uh, and so finding positive ways to talk about, acknowledge uh, and model masculinity is, I think, a, a real issue. And so, again, to kind of echo back what Christine said, I think that the, the conversations she had with young men are capturing something real. There is, there is nothing good about a society where femininity is seen as positive and masculinity is seen as negative. Or <laughs> it's a great, that's a great way to be frozen. Uh, Richard, do we have Richard back? Finish the last part of what you, you were saying. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm sorry about this. I, I seem to be losing my connection here. But um, uh, we don't want a world in which either femininity or masculinity are seen as bad or or good or better than the other. We have to find a way to make them both compatible and positive. And right now, the only quotes positive models of masculinity are the ones that Christine writes about, and they're not actually very positive because they're individualistic. Right, and so that, so let's talk more about this this phrase toxic masculinity um, because I think it's it, it's become salient because a lot of the um, a lot of the people who are occupying the space that young men are gravitating towards are as as Christine pointed out Andrew Tate I'm sorry is to my mind not a good masculine role model um, he's not someone. I would want to emulate or I would want any of my of my male relatives or friends to emulate. But you both have a problem with that phrase, toxic masculinity. So um, Richard, let me go to you go to you first on this because you think it's pro it's problematic as it's being as it's being discussed coming from the left. 
I do. First of all, putting those two words next to each other just inevitably creates the sense there's something toxic about masculinity. And so that's just a very negative message to start the conversation. It's not it's not a good way to call men into the conversation. And most feminists actually that I've spoken to agree with that now. But at at a deeper level, the problem is that there's a failure to articulate a a sort of non-toxic masculinity, even if that's really how low we're setting the bar. Very Mm -hmm. often, those people who are using that term fail to come up with attributes of masculinity that are distinct on average from, say, feminine traits, and yet are good. So if there's no non-toxic masculinity, then that means there's only toxic masculinity. And that's just a really bad place to end up in. I'm struck by some polling that masculinity is now used in almost an entirely negative way. And that's, that's, I think, a real cul-de-sac culturally. And so instead, as Christine's essay says, and and as I say in my book, we've got to start, A, addressing the actual problems of boys and men more seriously, just more prosaically, more straightforwardly. Look at the education problem. Look at the surge in suicide among young men. Just just like you wouldn't ignore it if it was your son's son's problem or your brother's problem. So let's just not ignore those problems. That's number one. And then number two, start to make sure there are role models for, for young boys and men that are not online and are in their classroom or on the playing field. Um, uh, Christine? Yeah, I I totally agree with what Richard is saying here in that just using the phrase toxic constantly, you know, when we talk about masculinity, especially in progressive spaces, it almost always seems like toxic is either the word before it or the word after it. Um, to young men, especially the young men who I talk to, they feel kind of stigmatized by that. You know, they, they sort of say, it's not my fault that I'm a man. Um, is just being a man a bad thing? Are men in general bad? And that's unfortunately added onto by um, what has become kind of a common way of joking, especially in feminist spaces where we talk about, you know, men are trash, <laughs> you know, we should ban all men. Um, that first, I mean, it causes a feeling of, I think actually deserve it, hurt. Um, and then also causes a feeling of resentment you know, uh, well, if you think men are trash, if you think men are bad, if you think I'm toxic, I'm not going to listen to your advice. I guess I'm just going to keep being me. Sorry if I'm toxic. Maybe I'll even be a little bit more toxic, which is literally a line that that Andrew Tate has used. Um, So I think that we, if we want to talk about solutions for men, we also have to make them feel invited into the conversation, not just stigmatized for existing, frankly. And also, as you were speaking, Christine, you know, some men might decide to be, well, I'll be a little more toxic. Or as we're seeing, men just withdraw. Uh, and they withdraw to these online spaces where they don't have to come into, into contact with anybody who will make them feel toxic. I want to go to this audience question um, from a man named uh, Ronald Levant from Ohio who just happens to be the former president of the American Psychological Association, but we found that, through our, found that on our own, through our own sleuthing. But here's what he asked. To what extent do you think boys and men's problems today are the result of adherence to outmoded and restrictive masculine norms? Uh, Richard, what do you think? I think to some extent, but not completely. And the question actually gets to this whole issue of the extent to which we're blaming masculinity for the problems of boys and men, in this case, the outmoded 
version. And that's what there's a good part of this story, which is, look, if old fashioned masculinity meant, you know, not being able to be emotionally available, not seeking help for your health care, the stoicism that the APA actually talked about in, in its own guidance. Can that be a problem for men's health and men's social connection? For sure. But on the other hand, there are aspects of masculinity which are distinctly male on average, which are around more physicality, more competitiveness, et cetera. And if, the, if those need to be channeled in a kind of positive direction, rather than framing this in such a way as if we could just get rid of this old masculinity would be great, uh, unless we replace it with something much more positive. So I think there's some truth to the fact that these old models of masculinity have hurt men as well, but that doesn't mean we should just abandon them and not replace them. That creates mm. a dangerous vacuum. Christina, I'd love your thoughts. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting question and really well put. You know, I've been <laughs> entering the danger zone and reading the comments on this piece. There are more than oh my 10 God, why would you do Christine, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> because I think that this question is really interesting, you know, and I'm clearly not a man. And so also just hearing men respond to this is fascinating to me. Um, and one of the things that I keep seeing coming up in, in a response to this piece is, okay, you're trying to put forward these modes and models for masculinity, but as our questioner says, having this one strict model of masculinity has hurt men in the past, has left a number of men feeling left out, like they don't live up to whatever they're supposed to be. And it's especially troubling, I think, for men who identify as queer or LGBT or anywhere else on the spectrum that wouldn't fit into the traditional John Wayne model. Mm -hmm. And so I actually think that the solution is not to totally throw out old modes or sort of old forms of masculinity, because as Richard says, some of them do have qualities that are helpful, that actually do acknowledge something about sort of the physical embodiment of, of being male and what to do about it. What actually I think we're looking for in this moment is new, better and extended models of masculinity. There might be norms, but you can sort of branch out anywhere from those norms. You can be any kind of man. You just have to figure out how to be a good one. And there is a character yeah. of character, not just biology, a character of duty and responsibility that comes with being a good man or in fact a good person. And we need to have clear models for how to do that, not just say either men are bad, don't be a man, or just be nice, which doesn't really convey very much information, especially for a young person who's searching for a clear path. Right. I, I, yeah, I, or sometimes even, I'd be, I, more, be more like your sister. It's be more like your sister is sometimes what, what, what men hear is why can't you be more like that? But as the question gets at that, the big divide here, I think, is, is actually do we need to abandon or adapt masculinity? And there is a, a, a view that we can abandon it, uh, or, uh, which I think to some extent comes through in that question, or do we adapt it to the modern world? And then of course, there are the man, man's influencers who just say, no, we don't need to adapt it, we need to go back. But the truth is that very few men actually want to go back, right? Most men are glory in the world where there's more equality, but but nor also do they want to be told that they need to stop being masculine in order to be equal. I think Christine and I both use a similar line, which is that you don't have to have androgyny to have equality. And if that's what's on offer, mm -hmm. we shouldn't be surprised that many men are running away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that that was an an excellent line. And you know, Christine, in your in your response, um, I, I really loved it because one of the 
one of the reasons why the, the masculinity conversation always just sort of gets my shoulders hunched is because, look, I'm an out gay, out gay married man, and the conversation doesn't, I feel like it doesn't include me. And that a lot of the folks having this conversation would not consider me to be masculine, however, however they're going to define it. Um, and so I, I agree with both of you that masculinity needs to be uh, adapted to um, you know, our, our modern world. Richard, in your book, and, and you also talk about this as well in your essay, Christine, about, um, about how schools and some programs are geared towards girls. Um, and I think you both mentioned um, former President Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative um, as a program specifically designed for black men, black men and boys that got a lot, received a lot of controversy. And I wrote about it from its inception um, through, you know, through all the years. And at one point, um, and this is gonna be a little name drop for a minute, but bear with me. Um, the late opera singer, Jesse Norman, um, there was a little birthday dinner for her in New York, and some of her close friends were there, including Gloria Steinem, the feminist icon. Gloria Steinem and I got into a heated argument about My Brother's Keeper and about how unfair it was to women and girls. And we had this pitched battle where I was like, um, but no one's paying attention to black men and boys. And, you know, the president is a black man. And so it would, I think it's great, but she thought it was problematic because maybe he was too close to it. So talk about how programs um, being geared more to, to girls in schools is leading to the alienation that boys who then become men are feeling. Yeah, so I'll, I'll jump in here. First of all, your your exchange with Gloria, I think, illustrates a real problem with this debate, which is that if it's framed as zero sum, if mm -hmm. this is framed as, okay, but by paying more attention to boys and men, in this case, a specific, a specific group of boys and men, black boys and men, that will distract attention from the ongoing need to do more for women and girls. And that's just not true. That's like saying to a parent who has a son and a daughter, you're only allowed to care about one of them. Right. That's just not how societies work. Uh, and so I think that zero sum framing is false. And I think it's been very damaging because it's actually made it much harder for people to talk about this issue without being seen as in some way anti-women. If you can't be worried about men uh, without being cast as somehow anti-women, they're in real trouble. And I think uh, that's why I'm hopeful this is moving on, because it is true that just educationally, we see huge gender gaps, which are much wider for boys of color and especially black boys and men. But just to give you one data point, there's a bigger gender gap on college campuses today in the US than there was when Title IX was passed in 1972. And of course, Gloria had quite a lot to do with that. There's a bigger gap, but it's the other way around. So women are further ahead of men today in higher education than men were ahead of women when we passed Title IX. Now, that's a non-trivial reversal of that gender gap. 
and and it seems to me that both are worthy of attention have different causes and it, and the education system as a whole is somewhat more female friendly than male friendly not always and not for everybody that's a that's a policy issue that we should take seriously and certainly we shouldn't be relaxed about the fact that there are fewer and fewer male teachers in our classrooms every passing year without anybody seeming to want to do anything about that there's 23% of our teachers now are male and it's 33% only a couple of decades ago do if we really worried about boys then why are we just emptying our classrooms of male teachers and not apparently doing anything about that. That's a very practical issue, I know, but it seems to me that that's where we need to move this debate. Christine, love your love your thoughts on this as well, of course. Yeah, no, it's, it, <laughs> it is an interesting question because I also actually, I feel Gloria's tension and I, I sort of talk about it in mm. my essay. There is, I think, a real fear among progressives, among feminists who have worked so hard for the women's movement, so hard to garner some attention for women's issues that, you know, we aren't done yet. Uh, as we saw in the COVID-19 pandemic, when women were beginning to drop out of the workforce en masse, the gains for women have been fragile. Um, and there's a fear that, okay, if we turn away from that question, and just start focusing on men now, we're gonna forget about women again. Um, and then there's a sort of resentment, I think too, you know, men have been in charge in some sense for hundreds, nay, thousands of years. Are we really going to totally shift our focus and get upset because men are sad that they're, you know, female finally, really that we need to focus on. But, you know, I say in my piece that men and women depend on each other. The sexes rise fall together. If men are, as one woman put it, in their flop era, uh, then women are going to be upset too. And mm -hmm. again, reading the comments, also reading emails, I've gotten a, a number, like a surprising number actually, of emails from men who or professors are or were teachers or volunteered in classrooms um, who have said, you know, I, I do think it's important to have all male spaces in some ways for young men to be able to come together and sort of talk about their issues without being worried about what the girls are thinking. And every time I try to do that, say, have kind of like a, there's a play and, you know, women get together for sort of a women's hour uh, and exchange stories before the first, you know, the first performance and men have gotten together separately, but I get in trouble because we're not supposed to do that anymore. It's seen as not inclusive to have separate places for men to get together. And even in our politics, I think there's this fear of not being inclusive if you speak specifically to men or specifically to men's problems. And so there's this broader ethos of, well, we'll just talk to everybody at once. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking to everybody, the message gets really muddled it doesn't seem like it's directed towards anyone. And so it's simply less effective. You know, um, as you were speaking, Christine, your, your, your signal glitched there for a second and folks caught me looking over here because I'm scrolling through your piece trying to find something where you point out uh, in your piece about Richard how, and I think Richard, you're quoted as saying, you don't exactly go there in terms of of putting out a roadmap or a plan for how to get to where we need to get 
um, to have boys and men um, have a, a better or a different uh, vision of masculinity. Why? Well, I, one reason, Jonathan, is, is the reason that you alluded to earlier, which is that there are many different ways of being a man. And we shouldn't lose in this discussion about the fact there are real problems for lots of boys and men. We shouldn't sort of revert to any kind of idea that there's a sort of single model of masculinity. So something I want to I want to leave as much space as possible. But frankly, because there are lots of practical problems facing boys and men, and and and, and Christine is is felt is is focused to some extent on the cultural aspect of of this issue, but. But I'm very worried about the fact that only 60% of black boys in Michigan graduated high school on time. I'm really worried that there was a massive rise in the number of young men committing suicide between 2020 and 2021. I'm really worried about declining wages for men. And so there's a bit of a danger that we sort of we lose the opportunity to just talk about practical issues that are actually facing men. And actually, Christine in her essay has this really nice example of a missed opportunity. Pete Buttigieg uh, was challenged by Joy Reid uh, on MSNBC. Uh, she called the infrastructure bill a kind of white man's bill or something. And he just denied that that was, was true and talked about people of color and men and women both benefiting from transport and so on. What I'd like him to have done is actually to know, because, because he would know if he looked at the numbers, that yes, it goes to working class men by and large, that infrastructure spending, two thirds of the jobs will be to working class men, but just as much to black and Hispanic working class men as white working class men. And then he could have said, and is that such a terrible thing? Given the trends in the economy, is it so bad that we have a bill that's going to help working class men of all color? We're doing lots of things over here to help women and girls in education. We should continue to do those, not a zero sum game. So instead, he just had to deny that this was actually a pro-male uh, bill. And I, I think that's a missed opportunity, especially for the left. And it creates a real opening for the right to be able to claim with too much legitimacy that the left don't care about men. And Christine, we have zero time left, but I want to give you the last word here, especially since you've sloshed through what, to my mind, is usually the sewer, that is the comment section on all our pieces, uh, usually. But given, given that you've done it, what's the one thing you've learned from the comments that you, was the most unexpected in response to your essay? Ooh, that's, that is a hard question. Um, I don't know if it's if it was unexpected. Um, it was a surprise to me. I think the reason why there are so many comments, actually, and why this essay seems to have spread so far, is that people were waiting to talk about this. There are so many people who are concerned, whether it's moms concerned about their sons, fathers concerned about their sons, women concerned about their boyfriends and the men that they know, um, who they see changing in weird ways. And, and that was my impetus for, for writing this piece. But there's almost a fear of talking about it as if by talking about men specifically, you are a bad progressive or a bad model. And so people have just kept to themselves having a space to have this conversation seems really, really key. And actually one more thing I would say, yeah. um, there is some, again, pushback for towards the old ideal of masculinity that says 
men have responsibilities. Men are called to do something. There's this idea that like, well, we shouldn't force anyone to do anything. Actually, people should just do what they want. But in the comments, in the responses I've been getting, so many men are actually saying, no, I want you to tell me what to do. I want you to give me a job. I want to be called to something. I want something to aspire towards. It's not that men want to retreat or want to do less or even feel oppressed um, by some of the expectations that they've been given. It's that it seems that they don't feel like they have the space to fulfill them in a way, um, that they don't actually feel called to something higher than themselves. And I think all of us want that. All of us want to be called to be better than who we are, to have something that we're moving towards. And that feels like something that's been lost, but is really important. Christine, you're, I agree with Richard. Your, your essay entitled Men Are Lost, Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness in the Washington Post, it, it, it is an important moment. It is so well done. Congratulations on that piece. Richard Reeves, your book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It is also an important read. Thank you both very much uh, for your work and for coming to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to K-Part. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.